You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast by students and graduates. Whether you've never heard of philosophy or have a philosophy PhD, we hope you enjoy these conversations as we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. So we've got two Joes again. Hello, Joe. Hi. Hello, Joe. Good evening. So today we're going to be talking about the 1982 film Blade Runner and its sequel. It was released in 2017, Blade Runner 2049. Because there's a lot of philosophy in the film and I thought it would be an interesting one to do. We watched it a couple of weeks ago, had a little movie night, and we had a few ideas of uh, things to talk about today. But we're mostly going to do it off the cuff because I think that's the way... We like doing these episodes now. But before if you we... can't already tell. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I can't involved the plan, that's why. Mm. But yeah, I, I thought a good question to open with, um, very briefly, would be to try and have a go at defining what art actually is, and therefore what film is, and what makes a good film, and what makes good art. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a definition of art. So the, the definition that I, I've heard and I quite like is that art is the communication of an intention... Uh, of, of like an idea it has to have an, an intention I think intent is, is important, important that's like I know that's pretty controversial we can maybe get into that but I think it's the communication of an idea or a feeling through a kind of culturally accepted forum or a medium so like a, sculptures or video games or films the reason I think that intent is so important is because let's say you think Blade Runner is about drugs like a lot of people will, uh, like this um literary theory called Death of the Author. You heard of it? No. no. There's a whole idea that um, the meaning of art is, is controlled through the person reading it. The writer of the film doesn't get to decide what's canon once he releases it out to the public kind of thing. That's, that's kind of what it is. Tell that to Ridley Scott. Exactly. I was going to say tell that to yeah. J.K. Rowling. Dumbledore was gay. Yeah, Dumbledore was gay. And uh, what was the other one he did? Hermione's black. I never said her race, but she did say her race. Brilliant. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a bit when Hermione's afraid or whatever and she goes white. <laughs> she, could, she could be quite impressive, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how afraid? <laughs> quite afraid. If you can't tell already, I'm, I'm really congested, so um, that's why I sound worse than usual. And due to us sharing Bombay mix, so me and Joe next week. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and I'm drinking uh, 2.8% ale. So uh, it's going to take a few of these before I get the phrenesis. So art, I agree with the intention aspect Mm -hmm. of it. Ultimately, art is a conversation, and I don't think it's really any different, apart from the medium that's being told, to me talking to you right now. It's just a little bit more poetic. I think obviously you can have ambiguity, and you can take inspiration from things, but it comes to a point where you can't just walk along and say, that road is art, that car is art, that... You know, it has to have context, doesn't it? Yeah. The context you talk about is intention. It's conversation, and what you decide is conversation. You can kind of play fast and loose with it, but you can't define it too far, otherwise you, there's no point using the word. You mm. can't just call anything you come across art because you find art in it. I think there's even been, within art, pieces of art that question whether or not they're pieces of art. But that's the point of the art. Yeah, that yeah. could be part of the art. So, so, yeah. Like, the Brillo pads. Yeah. Is that Andy Warhol? I think so. It's just a box of Brillo pads, right? Right, yeah. But by Andy Warhol saying, oh, this is a piece of art that I've created, it now takes on a whole new life. It's making you think about why is it art, isn't it? Yeah. So not only is art something that can 
communicate something. It can also be self-referential. And I think that referential aspect also highlights another aspect of art, which is anything can be art, but it is, as Joe was saying, the context of it. I think the context of it and the intention combined creates something completely different to, say, if I just put this bottle down, because it's just a bottle on the floor, right? Yeah. So I but if I suddenly say, this, I've done this intentionally, this is my art piece, mm. then it, the whole kind of dimension of it takes a new twist or whatever. Yeah, there's the classic example of um, just putting a pair of glasses down in a, an art gallery and then people start gathering around the pair of glasses they think it's an exhibit. Yeah. And then that leaves the argument that you can say, oh, anything's art, like Joseph, he just puts the bottle down. It's art. But the point of the context is that it's in the context of an art gallery. Yeah. It's supposed to be art. There's an intention behind it. And when those people realise the intention, they're yeah. usually annoyed. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and it makes you think about it. It's in a it's in an art gallery in a context, and you make it's making you think. Why is it art? But yeah. already is it succeeded as a piece of art because you're thinking about it. And I think some of the people that disagree with that definition, I think a lot of them think just because art can take on any medium, they think that anything can be art, and therefore the definition the, the idea is meaningless. But I think a lot of the time people are thinking of abstract art, and I've got a little bit of a a soft spot since learning about it for abstract art because I used to have that exact same opinion before I studied it you know a dot on a page or whatever it isn't art but when you look at a lot of Jewish art a lot of it has to be formless and a lot of religious art in general um, because to make forms is idolatrous it's yeah. it's like especially human faces to depict human faces especially of holy people as well in Islam but uh, human faces in general in Judaism is seen as a massive affront to God it's not like sinful, you won't get punished for it, but it's it's something that Jewish people take on themselves to not do. It tends to lead to the issue of worshipping the image rather than the foot behind it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's this it, and it's to enforce an idea really in, in the community of humility. Yeah. And and even within abstract art you have like brush strokes and things that are quite complicated. And it's like and people go, oh, I could do that. Well could you? My twelve year old could do that. Yeah, no, you probably couldn't there, there is a little bit more going on than you think I, I kind of understand that to a certain extent and I do like to kind of interject a bit and say that there is a sense of skill I think in art and I think that should be taken into account that skill being put into art should be considered a part of art but when yeah. we talk about that I think even presenting a piece of abstract art or a piece of art that's uh, I can't remember the artist but uh, the urinal in the art gallery. Mm. Yeah. Even that takes skill because it's the skill to make people think. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah. He's, no, he's okay. put it there. Okay. And he's thought about it. He's not just put a urinal in an art gallery. He's thought about it to make other people think about it. Yeah. The, the skill to try to challenge. The skill to challenge. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I, I want to be clear that I don't mean skills in terms of how good you are a painter, but yeah. the skill to be able to provoke thought. Although, yeah, that is that is the the convention I think in traditional. Yeah. Um, so is Blade Runner a good example of art? Um, I think there, there are two ways to look at it. So you can look at it in terms of taste. At the end of the day, my taste is something that... I, there's no point me talking to you about my taste for an hour on a podcast. I, what am I, how, where does that conversation stop? Am I going to stop talking to you about the fact that I like toast? Or It's like I, there's only so much I can communicate through those kind of ideas. So I like to think of it a little bit more objectively in terms of how the film's made and more importantly in terms of art, does it have an, int- an intention that's discernible and does that intention resonate with audiences so if you if you release a song for the purpose of money it kind of has a false intention like an ulterior motive it's not a true expression of what you think it is so therefore I think 
subjectively we can kind of have grounds to say things are less artistic yeah. tentatively the best artist for its own sake has a clearer vision we should probably say from here on out there's going to be spoilers so I hope you enjoyed that really dry conversation about art because if you wanted no spoilers that's all you're getting <laughs> <laughs> it was based on a, a novel by Philip K. Dick called does anyone know what it's called? Can George, George Dream of Electric Sheep fuck alright <laughs> yeah nice one Connor yeah this is really smart art. that's the only research I've done and you fucking show me up <laughs> there's a bit where Decker goes to a, a police station that he's not been in before everyone in the police station is replicant that's probably the most interesting part of the book we should actually explain what Blade Runner is for a start. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Blade Runner is a science fiction noir film. It started its own genre. So noir is those kind of gritty 30s fucking cop films. It's set in the future and it follows a Blade Runner, Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, who is a kind of cop who hunts down artificial people called Reckons. He's sent to retire them. Yeah, not that's, that's yeah. the important thing, retire rather than kill implying that they're not humans mm-hmm. which is, I think, yeah which I think is the central theme of the film uh, so who else is in it? Uh, the woman <laughs> Sean uh, Sean Young yeah who didn't get to reprise a role in the sequel really ish uh, but yeah so uh, and Rutger Howard plays the, the the leader of the replicants Roy Bob yeah so Deckard is forced out of retirement to pursue are they Nexus 5, Nexus 6? Nexus 6. Nexus 6. 6 replicants, who are like the most advanced yet. And, they're, and they're, their purpose is to work off-world, fighting wars and... One of the first parts of his investigation leads into Sean Young's character, who doesn't realise she's a replicant. He goes to Tyrell, the big business guy who creates all the replicants, and uh, he's, he's kind of fascinated with Sean Young's lack of awareness that she's a replicant. But she's also a new model. In testing her, he finds it more difficult to determine that she is yeah. not human. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. He goes back to his apartment. I think those are the moments where it tries to it tries to ponder the nature of humanity, which we'll get onto in a, bit, in a second. Um, and the only other thing that really happens is he hunts down the replicants one by one until there's only two left. The two seek refuge with a designer of replicants who himself is ageing rapidly because these replicants are built to die within a four-year lifespan. I've never seen that link. I'm, I'm a dumbass. Really? Yeah, he's the human equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's why they, they have this little bond. Oh. We're so happy you found us. <laughs> I don't think there's another human being in the whole world who would have helped us. So, um... How many times have I seen that film? Yeah, um, and the Rutger Hauer Roybot kills uh, Tyrell um, after Tyrell tells him there's no way to expand his age beyond what's been programmed. And Harrison Ford finally catches up with them, them all. There's a brief run fight. And Rutger Hauer acts like an absolute madman running around howling, crying. I mean, I'm not going to say overacting, <laughs> but... <laughs> And this is where I think the, some of the philosophy falls a little bit flat. He puts nails through his hand. Yeah, a little bit biblical. To, to feel alive. Yeah, and it's like, oh, Jesus, literally. <laughs> like, what's going on? And then 
he's trying on different accents for some reason. He's smashing his head through walls, and Harrison Ford's just going raw, just like <laughs> running away, not really saying anything. You better get it up. I'm gonna have to kill you. Unless you're alive, you can't play, and if you don't play. <laughs> and the, the chase culminates through some pigeons and up onto a rooftop, at which point... Isn't one of them a tough? Ruggahauer saves Harrison Ford from falling and dies himself and gives this little subdued speech about tears in the rain. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. And that, I mean, that part where he shows a little bit of humanity is basically what the film has been building to the whole time. That is the only thing the film really has to say. Yeah. And then Rachel, Sean Young's character, and um, Rick Deckard, I think they're allowed to leave and the police don't pursue them and supposedly they live a, a life elsewhere. So what did we think of the first Blade Runner? Boy? <laughs> a slow paced. It is. Yeah, it was a slow paced. It's a, it's a, it, it is a slow burner. I like it. Yeah, I, I mean, I like it. And I, I think we have to give it its credit for a lot of things. So You have to look at it from a point of view in 1982. Like, Absolutely. If you're watching it in 1982, holy shit, mm. it's big. Yeah. <laughs> it's hot. It is. It's hot right now. So obviously it's, it's this it's this high-tech dystopia in which the world's... I think the backstory is like a world... The world's gone for a nuclear war. I didn't know that. They don't mention it at any point in the film, but, I mean, it's pretty obvious through the aesthetic. Um, and it has this, this very unique aesthetic especially at that point very dreary um, did it invent cyberpunk pretty much so cyberpunk is the use basically of fucking claustrophobic amount of neon advertisement and or at least that's how Ridley Scott saw it there are a few films which this is something I wanted to talk about there are a few films recently I think Ready Player One might be an example where lots and lots of neon lights and advertisements and shop fronts and things dominating the cityscape is meant to be seen as cool like in Altered Carbon. Ghost in the Shell as well does a similar thing. Yeah, and it's like, it, it shows, oh, isn't, isn't this, this is a kind of beauty. With Willie Scott's Blade Runner, it really is just this, it adds to the claustrophobia and depression and the fact that human life means nothing in this. It's always fucking raining. Yeah, it's always raining and it's always adverts just so pervasive just everywhere in every shot and people just rushing and, it, and it's it's a very cold universe. Ready Player um, One, you know where that was filmed? Where was it filmed? Birmingham. Because mm. they wanted a post-apocalyptic. They wanted a shithole. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, it was literally an interview with Steven Spielberg. <clears throat> and he's like, we wanted something that looked like it had been bombed. Well, why not London? <laughs> what areas? Imagine, imagine, yeah, trying to afford to shoot that long in London. Yeah, true. Oh, uh, yeah, I suppose. When we're critiquing this, I'm less interested in effects and things, or and even plot holes. I really want to get to the themes and the characters and whether they work. 
the way they came across the way <laughs> Ridley Scott intended it. Yeah. I think the first film's ambitious, but I, I don't think it pulls the themes off quite as well as some fans think it does. Yeah. I just want to talk about what's good, first of all. So what, what do we like about the film? I'm going to say straight away, just this, the whole environment. Mm. Yeah. Did you like the Jawas? The Jawas? <laughs> random. The weird little... Yeah, yeah. Like, people trying to nick things off his flying car. Yeah. I just like the whole th- the the world building in that film. As soon as you see it, you're instantly like, oh, I know how it would feel to live somewhere like that. It, yeah, it makes you feel it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. it doesn't look particular. <coughs> it's not an image of hell. There aren't people writhing over each other, but it's very claustrophobic. Yeah, they are very quite relatable. They are figuratively, yeah. yeah. And it, it's scary how close yeah. some places in the world are getting to that. It's got this Asian theme going on yeah, as well, does, yeah. which we might talk about later. But, but you can compare it to, like, Japan. Yeah, well, like, a, a city yeah. that has massive problems with smog and yeah. this high-rise, yeah. So I think they do spend a lot of time just real slow shots of the city. I think that's part of the craft. I think mm. I, I'm not sure if that's bad or, but I'm, I'm not sure if it makes for a very entertaining watch at times. Sometimes you're like, oh, this is great. I'm seeing this massive cityscape and this mm. slow journey. It's world building. Other times, we'll talk about the, the zoom and enhance scene, <laughs> oh, Jesus. which is easy to nitpick on, but it, it's just Harrison Ford sat there looking at the screen, going zoom and enhance, move left, move right, zoom in, just doing that for about four minutes straight yeah. and, there, and there are only about two action scenes in this entire film a lot of it is either establishing shots or dialogue which is fine or you're just looking at things yeah <laughs> move in stop pull out track right stop center and pull back there is a, there is a, a pacing issue. I'd say the second film is has a slow pace. Never really feels like it's outstaying its welcome. I'm not okay. really sure why that is. Okay, but I think when we're talking about intention, I'm not necessarily sure if it's meant to be entertaining. I think it meant to be sucked in at that point. Yeah, but I'm not even sure that when this came out, 1982. Yeah, this is like the era of Rambo and like Arnold Schwarzenegger just blowing crap up. For this film to come out, I don't think it was meant to be a blockbuster film. I think it was meant to be kind of the opposite of that. There were artsy films like uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and going further back to Citizen mm-hmm. Kane. Yeah, I, I guess they don't really have that pull with general audiences. I think they still don't. I mean, Blade Runner 2. Blade um, Runner 2049. Yeah. <laughs> that um, did poorly, didn't it? didn't do very well, yeah. I think it's because they didn't want to give much away in the marketing. Mm-hmm. And I think Hollywood likes to stick to established franchises now. I think this has kind of a niche following, this first film. I think it's like a cult following because the, the initial reception wasn't very good. Then again, the, the theatrical edition ends with them like as going into the sunset in like a forest. Yeah. It's really mm. strange. And it's I think it was tacked on because of pressure from the studio. Because it's too depressing. Yeah, they felt everything was just a bit too bleak. But yeah, so the, the design is great. And they the fact how they achieved that with scale models, I mean, you were talking about skill, the use of matte paintings and, and real models not only helps make it look really realistic, but it's just nice to see that kind of craft. I think you brought up a good point a minute. You're talking about the 
the, the end scene where it's you know it cuts away from the bleakness but I just want to kind of make clear it's not nice to watch the first, well, the majority of the film. It doesn't make you feel nice. It's, it's not supposed to, I know, but yeah. watching it, it, it is really bleak. And it does make you a bit depressed thinking about it and watching it and seeing this crowded space where it's always raining and it's dark and it's full of advertising. Yeah. And it really does make you feel it. It does a really good job of making you consider what that would be like. He wants to make us feel that, but why? And Does he achieve it? He obviously does, but why? why does he want that? And I think it's because he wants to communicate some kind of truth. And it's whether that truth exists is really whether the film is any good. But a lot of the philosophy, for me anyway, falls a little bit flat. It feels like philosophy well, didn't In the work. first one, yeah. Yeah, in the it's first one. a little bit yeah. kind of should, discount philosophy, in it? Should we, ex- before we start criticising it, explain what attempts at philosophy are made? Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. <laughs> So the philosophy of it, yeah, the the kind of je pense don't je suis, je pense don't je suis, um, that is in the film, but not in French. Well, I think therefore I am. Yeah, he says, one, one of the uh, robots I, says it. Yeah, Roy, Roy Bot says it uh, to J. R. Sebastian. Like I think Sebastian, therefore. Uh, of course, is. yeah. What qualities do you think something needs to be alive? Oh God. I think the base question is. Were they alive? And then from that is, were they, like, human? Because they're made in a factory or whatever. Mm. Well, consciousness, self-awareness. Yeah. An awareness of an awareness. Mm-hmm. More, is that it? More specifically. Uh, not really. Like, I, I asked a biologist this question, and they said a central nervous system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, is it's fine. So, well, not, it's not really. It's not, it's not a proper answer. I think he was probably describing sentience, not consciousness. Mm. It doesn't have to be poetry, or, or maybe it is irreducible. Maybe it can only be really communicated through prose. But mm. I think, if I was going to give it a, a definition, it would be awareness of awareness. But do you, th- do you think that... Yeah, well, the replicants are clearly concerned about their... Own it's thing. a sense of what it's like to be that thing. Yeah, I guess the idea of awareness recurring, like awareness of awareness of awareness. Because rabbits don't walk around going, I'm a rabbit, and I know I'm a rabbit, and I know I know I'm a rabbit. Mm. They just eat shit and shit <laughs> yeah because a lot of people say well how do you know and it's like that's not how the burden of proof works if you're doing it for that you could say how do you know about anything you say well how do you know my chair isn't alive you can't disprove it it's not, you can't prove that something isn't the case it's not you have to assert something you have to prove positive that thing otherwise anything you say without evidence could be dismissed without evidence it's, it's on you yeah. asserting the thing because a lot of people talk about dolphins whatever, and it's like well we probably see dolphins. Dolphins are amazing creatures. I'd like a pet dolphin. <laughs> I don't like dolphins. Why? They're rapey. Rapey rape sea sheep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Have you seen what they do to other fish? I haven't. Well, they're not. Well, first they're... of all, they're mammals, but they. Nice <laughs> save. They um, they, kind of. I don't know how they do it. It's amazing, but with their penises, yeah. they hollow out the insides of fish and fuck it. Right. To quote Joe, it's amazing. <laughs> did I say it's amazing? You did. I don't know how they do. I wouldn't be able to do it. Good. Would you want to do it? No. But yeah. they they do it. Okay. We probably, we probably see the dolphins exhibiting some kind of behaviour like worship or language. Or like pack mentality still. Like with a wolf or something. They can display a form of intelligence. Yeah. Where, where it can be read. 
as a form of intelligence, put it that way. Yeah, so and the, 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 the behaviour that he's played looks impressive. Their communication is complex, but it's not... It stops there, though, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, a mutual, a mutual friend of ours said something like, deers have democracy. It's like, no. I, I, I know David Attenborough constantly keeps saying things like, this young couple of parakeets are going on a date. They're not. You, say, you do realise they're not actually going on a date. That's a figurative language because their behaviour is incredible and complex and can be compared to a human date. That's exactly it, is we're yeah. using human stuff it's, to put it's it on It's just animals. an analogy. Yeah. Deers don't really have democracy. No. She flies off without even seeing his dance. He delivers his berries too late. He never got a chance to win her heart. And he lost his precious polishing cloth. So, do we think the replicants are conscious? They're definitely conscious. Yeah, well, they yes, can't yeah. prove consciousness. I mean, we don't really even know what consciousness is, but no. we know what it looks like, and... We know what it looks like from the outside. Yeah, and they... Kind of. Th- they qualify for the think, 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 thing. Yeah, thinking, thinking, thinking. Yeah. There is a, there is a, a Greek word for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's... I'm just, sure there is, Colin. I don't think yeah. it's that kind of thing. There's a lot of weird biblical... There's a lot of weird biblical stuff going on as well. My problem with the Christian themes is they don't really feel like they fit. It feels a bit cheap and syncretic, and it, it feels like they're just pointing out a parallel rather than a point. It's like, well, why use Christianity specifically? Mm. And it kind of just feels empty and like fake profundity. Yeah. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. The, the conversation with when he meets his maker, literally, yeah. When he meets Tyrell. And he kills him. And kills him through his eyes. That's another thing. Eyes are this massive thing. The eyes are a big thing, aren't they? Yeah. You know, eyes being the window to the soul. The first shot of the film opens with eyes. Eyes are a massive part of the... Um... Void camp. Yeah. There's, like, themes throughout the, fil- the film as well. Where, like, the eyes will glaze over of the replicants. There'll be a bit where their, their pupils go kind of white in a reflection. Yeah. And it's only, it, only the replicants it happens to. There's a kind of... This is a replicant. Yeah, because yeah, really Scott said, that's not what's happening, that's that's a visual cue for us to, yeah, to yeah. recognise, see them as a ro- more of a robot. I'm still not really that sold on the, on the ending. Like, this is a guy who, Rutter Howe has, mur- has murdered loads of people horrifically, showing no remorse, and he talks like an absolute fucking maniac. <laughs> man! <laughs> Police! Man! <laughs> That's our favorite. Talks like a robot, which is not the point. Sure, you show that you show this person to be and cold and calculating, and then you show him doing something compassionate at the end. But is it really compassionate? Juxtaposition, isn't it? He was ad libbing a lot of his performance. The Tears in the Rain speech is actually ad libbed. Is it? Yeah. Mm. Well, to be honest, he is actually more connectable than Deckard. I did. That's the my other problem with the character of Deckard. I don't really find myself rooting for him. In the, at the climax when they're fighting each other mm. I'm just like you, you don't have any control as well that's the problem he, he has, the guy has no agency he's just oh. sleepwalking through a job he doesn't want to do the entire film mm. and if he doesn't care why should we and mm. he, he's not got much of a life outside of this it's not like he completes this and gets to live happily ever after he goes back to alcoholism so we don't really get a sense of what his character is he's other a than hunky Harrison Ford type this might be my own prejudice, but is that a character problem or a Harrison Ford problem? <laughs> there's a, a, in the in one of the editions we watched the director's cut, but in one of the editions there's like voiceover, and apparently he delivered his lines as badly as possible so they wouldn't get used. New recreational. They don't advertise for killers in a newspaper. 
That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-blade runner. It's, it, I mean, you've got to find it. It's so funny. <laughs> my ex-wife used to call me a wet fish or something like that. <laughs> After the um, Tears in the Rain speech, it just undercuts this, the only real moment in the film with, I don't know why he saved me. Mm. Maybe it was because... He just wanted to. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was the theatrical release. Was it? Yeah. Oh my goodness. No wonder it got bad reviews. I don't know why he saved my life. Maybe in those last moments he loved life more than he ever had before. Shit. Some of the predictions that he got right are kind of interesting, mm-hmm. like voice control, mm-hmm. AI, and some of the things he got wrong, like flying cars. Why did everyone think we'd have flying everyone cars? Everyone thinks we'd get flying ships. We're still, we're still going to get these flying cars. <laughs> but, yeah, probably the, the scariest predictions are the, the advertising and the low quality of life that everybody seems to have, and the environmental damage that it predicts. Yeah. It's, um, There's no wildlife. Yeah, it makes a big point, both films saying about there are no wild animals apart from I think the pigeons at the, at the end of the, the third act of course they're going to live during the the big in, fight yeah, the rain yeah, rats are the yeah. sky pigeons I'm not a big fan of his performance I like Indiana Jones I like Harrison I like Han Solo his actions are just really jerky the entire film <laughs> he, he's acting like a fucking robot <laughs> which we'll, uh, we'll get onto that actually right do we think do we think that he's a, a robot yeah yeah well, here's the thing. Harrison Ford thinks he's not. Okay. And I, no, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> and everybody else will be shot first as well. Everybody else thought that he wasn't either until Ridley Scott adds in the the dream unicorn sequence and then tells everybody that was the case all along. But this is a perfect example of like, as soon as it's made, it's anyone's guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. What do you mean? Well, we were talking about intention, weren't we? I think there has to be a clear intention. And mm-hmm. But maybe the intention was to just plant the seed of the idea. Well, if we think that art's, art is a conversation, then surely it's the same as any conversation at its core. It may be more ambiguous, but there's still a right and wrong answer behind it all, unless the right and wrong answer is ambiguity itself, which is maybe what he's going for. But let's say he's not going for ambiguity, then there has to be a correct way of interpreting it. Otherwise, we could look at a letter from Anne Boleyn to Henry VIII and go... Always oh, up to us to decide the meaning. It's not. There was a meaning, but I think ultimately yeah. it doesn't matter whether he's a replicant or not. I think that's the point. Let's say he is. It means that we've been following a protagonist who thought he was human, acted human. Replicants weren't supposed to have feelings. Either were Blade Runners. What the hell was happening to me? Outside of Rucker Howard's little revelation, there's really not that much going on. Not overtly, in terms of... No. There are things you can pick apart and talk about, mm-hmm. like the, the culture and the, the, the world building, the, the environment and the, the advertising. That gibberish he talked was city-speak, gutter talk, a mishmash of Japanese, Spanish, German, what have you. Yeah, I think the best parts are in the setting, and the narrative kind of gets swallowed by this fucking pedestal of this really imaginative, terrifying, potentially possible world. I think the main thing that we all want to talk about is the human kind of thing you're watching television suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm I'd kill it what do you think of the character of Rachel 
I don't, do you think I don't think they have much chemistry, chemistry yeah I mean no she gets physically yeah. assaulted by him yeah. yeah I don't know what that is I don't know if that's just 80s just in there I can't tell if it's just 80s for me the major problem is that it builds up these characters with no human spirit and then at the end tries to give them spirit and meaning and that's fine that's a nice arc but it relies on chemistry not rape mm-hmm Sean Young and Harrison Ford actually hated each other in real life, and I think it shows. Yeah. And then the, the added question of whether he's a replicant, it kind of confuses that ending arc as well. For example, I think, I think it probably raises too many questions about determinism. Plus, you know, why was he physically weak? Why is he a terrible detective? Excuse me, Miss Salome, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm from the American Federation of Variety Artists. The best parts of it are the extreme utilitarianism of, of that society, the environmentalism, and the oppressive nature of their existence. But they're all backdrops to this story about humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good saying for a, a story about humanity. I just don't... Yeah, I mean, I like, I like the film. I'm probably being way too cynical. I'd say you are. Yeah, it's in my top ten. pick up on a bit of uh, I've just written Sean Connery <laughs> why? I don't know maybe Sean Connery was here's a fun fact for you for Sean Connery is like five years older than Harrison Ford really? fun fact don't associate that do you? no bloody hell it's not true maybe I'm bullshitting you are you to type it up how, how old Sean Connery's fucking old let's pause the podcast uh, Yeah, 12 years, 12 years older. <laughs> no, no, not having any more of your facts. I didn't know how long we'd have together. Who does? 